This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan on Gadigal Land. And me, Tegan Taylor on Jagera and Turable Land. Today, the link between obesity and cancer strengthens, but have cancer organisations been slow to get onto this? And what about diet and cancer? A huge study on the link between autoimmune diseases and heart disease. We'll look at why it happens and what can be done about it. Another malaria vaccine on the horizon. Will it overcome the challenges the current world-first vaccine faces? And... Until very recently, Canada's national alcohol guidelines were pretty similar to ours here in Australia. Ten standard drinks a week, give or take. But they've recently reviewed the evidence and their latest guidelines shift the recommendations down considerably. Now, instead of a single weekly cap, their recommendations are framed around levels of risk from no risk, not drinking at all, to low, moderate and increasingly high. For low risk, they recommend no more than two drinks a week for men and women. To talk us through these guidelines and what sits behind them, we're joined by the person who chaired the group who put together our equivalent here in Australia, Professor Kate Conagrave. Hi, Kate. Hi, Tegan. Nice to be with you. So let's start with a definition. What are we talking about when we're talking about art drink? Yeah, it's a good question. In Australia, we're talking about 10 grams, which is an Australian standard drink. And that's less than a can of beer. Uh, It's a small serve of beer. In New South Wales, it's a midi. And in Victoria, it's a pot. Um, And it's a glass of wine that's smaller than what a restaurant would serve. So that's an Australian standard drink. In Canada, they've gone the other way around. Rather than going for that neat metric 10 grams, they've gone for 13 grams, which roughly matches a small to average can of beer or roughly matches your glass of wine that you might have at a restaurant. Right, so they've gone for something that's probably a bit more recognisable to us as a drink, but uh, saying two a week is actually perhaps uh, understating it compared to the Australian guidelines. Well, um, so as you point out, they've made it clear that no level of drinking is totally without risk. And similarly in the Australian guidelines, we made it clear that the less you drink, the lower your risk. And both of those statements convey the fact that if you drink alcohol, you're accepting some degree of risk. What kind Um, of risks are we talking about? We're not talking really about maybe accidents or alcohol-fueled violence as much at this level of drinking, this low-ish level, as we are about like a cumulative lifetime health risk. You're exactly right. And the biggest risk that has really brought guidelines down all around the world is the risk of cancer. So even if you're drinking one or two drinks a day, your risk of cancer starts to go up. And because there is no lower limit where we know for sure there is no risk, um, that's why the guidelines um, in Canada have, you know, they've really said low risk is one or two, but no risk is zero. In the past, we heard they differentiated between guidelines for men and women. The previous Canadian guidelines did, and I believe Australians did a few guidelines ago. But the health risk does accumulate more quickly for women, doesn't it? Look, particularly at high levels of drinking, the risk goes up more quickly for women. At those low levels, there's there's not a massive difference. But, um, you know, obviously breast cancer for women is, is an issue that doesn't affect the men. And, yeah, that's one of those many conditions that cuts in from very low levels of drinking. So when we were talking before, you said, okay, a Canadian drink in these guidelines is slightly larger than what the Australian drinks are, but they, are, they have revised it down to well below what we are 
um, recommending to people. Does Australia, are we out of touch with what the research, the most up-to-date evidence is showing? Well, the evidence does keep evolving continuously and their guidelines are three years after ours. But the, the two sets of guidelines aren't as different as they look. They look at low risk as um, up to three Australian drinks a week and then moderate risk up to eight standard drinks a week. And we have up to 10 standard drinks a week. So, you know, the difference between eight and 10 isn't that great. And their criteria for moderate risk is um, the, the one in 100 risk of dying from uh, an alcohol-triggered death. I mean, that's if you're looking at them really closely. I think people just want a rule of thumb as to what they're meant to be doing. Is, is it yes. having this, what's this, what's, I mean, you, this is what you've done, right? You've had to chair this group that puts together these recommendations. What are you taking into consideration when you're thinking about how to frame this for a whole nation? Well, you're exactly right. And I think it's interesting that Canada took the view that it's a thinking public and they'd like to know the spectrum of risk so they can choose. We took the view that we wanted a simple message that we could communicate easily. And so, you know, hence we chose no more than 10 standard drinks rather than giving thresholds for different levels of risk. So we thought about not what's a level that gets rid of risk, but we thought about what's a level that puts risk down to a level that your average member of public is likely to want to accept. So similar sort of level of risk we accept if driving a car. So, uh, yeah, so it's a trade-off between simplicity and detail. Mm. But as I say, both guidelines give this message that the less you drink, the lower your risk, the more you drink, the higher your risk. How does this risk interact with other risk factors that people are already walking around with? There aren't many people in a completely healthy body. Things like obesity, heart disease, does that affect how much your your personal weekly or daily intake should be? You're exactly right. All these risks interact. And I notice you're talking about obesity later in the program. And that's one in particular. If, if you've got obesity and you drink um, alcohol above the limits, you're at an increased risk of first up fatty liver, but then scarring of the liver. And then scarring of the liver can be a risk for liver cancer. So yes, the uh, the risks interact. So if a person's obese or if they have something else affecting their liver, they might want to drink less. Or if they have a high family history of breast cancer, they might want to drink less. So if, with all this in mind, uh, briefly, if there's one thing that the person listening is taking away from this conversation, what do you hope it is? The memory that all drinking of alcohol conveys some risk and inform yourself and if you want to keep your risk to a manageable level those guidelines either the Australian or the Canadian ones but the Australian ones are simpler if you can keep to less than 10 standard drinks a week then that reduces your risk to a much more manageable level and if you want no risk you don't drink alcohol. Kate thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Professor Kate Conagrave is an addiction medicine specialist and public health physician at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and you're listening to The Health Report. One million Australian adults were diagnosed with a cancer related to obesity over a 34-year period, and the contribution of obesity to cancer rates in Australia has been steadily rising. Ironically, this has been happening as the risk of cancer not related to obesity has been declining. This comes from a large study published in one of the Lancet journals. Someone who's been studying the population impact of obesity for many years and has advised the World Health Organization on its obesity policies is Boyd Swinburne, who's Professor of Population Nutrition and Global Health at the University of Auckland. Welcome back to the Health Report, Boyd. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. Just tell us a little bit about this study. 
Well, this is an observational study, and most uh, studies of cancer are observational. In other words, they take baseline measures, including diet, and then they follow people over a period of time to uh, see the, the impact on uh, what, what diseases they come out with. And this has um, been done in many countries uh, around the world. In fact, uh, the whole cancer research area and risk factors for cancer has, has a lot of studies uh, backing it up. And so this Australian study really does gives good, good local data, um, but, but really much uh, in line with what uh, international studies are showing as well, about a 4 to 5% attributable risk um, to overweight or obesity. And when you say population attributable risk, is that 4 to 5% of all cancers can be blamed on obesity? That's right, directly attributable to it. And which cancers are more likely? Um, well, the, mo- the most common cancers that are affected by BC and common are common cancers are bowel cancer and postmenopausal breast cancer. There is a whole range of other cancers as well, kidney cancer, pancreas, esophageal, and so on. It's about 13 in all that have quite a significant association. But most of them are relatively rare cancers. The common cancers are the, the colon cancer and postmenopausal breast cancer. And so that, that contributes to the biggest burden to the uh, obesity-caused part of cancer. Now, it's one thing to say population attributable risk, in other words, the proportion of the population that obesity plays a role. But if you're overweight or obese, what's your personal risk? Do we understand that? Yeah, we do. And uh, for an individual, being uh, overweight or obese carries a risk of about a um, up to about a 50% increase in risk for colon and postmenopausal breast cancer. But some, for some of the other rare ones, like uh, uterine cancer esophagus, uh, the risk can be up to three times uh, the risk compared to a person who is not uh, overweight or obese. Now, people who are overweight and obese, their diets are probably quite similar. Is it the overweight or obesity or is it what they eat? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question and very difficult to untangle. And as these studies have gone on internationally, we've found that obesity becomes a stronger and stronger risk factor over time, probably because it's increasing in the population, but also because it's very accurately measured. The body mass index is very tightly measured, whereas to try to measure diet um, is very difficult. And the instruments that we have, the dietary records and so on, um, are not nearly as precise as obesity. So that's probably part of the reason that obesity is showing through as a risk factor, whereas diet is perhaps a bit less. But it's almost certainly um, due to some of the measurement issues, and I'm sure the diet has a very big role to play in addition to the obesity. So, for example, postmenopausal breast cancer, um, the fat tissue in itself is what is generating the estrogens, the female hormones, which seem to be behind the increased risk. So it is an issue of the diet that causes the uh, uh, obesity in the first place, plus the effect, the effect of uh, having excess fat. Now, you think that the various cancer organisations, particularly in Australia, have been late to the party on obesity? I think that internationally, cancer organisations have been very late to the party. Cancer councils, cancer uh, research uh, groups, research funding agencies like the very large one in the US, the National Institute of Cancer. Um, these, uh, they've, they've been dealing with tobacco and with um, exposed toxins and uh, sunlight and that sort of thing. 
but this whole area of diet and obesity has only recently emerged, well, recently, actually, in the last 10 or 15 years, but um, they haven't really got onto it. But the exception, I think, is Cancer Council Victoria. They've been fantastic over the last 10 or 20 years supporting the uh, Obesity Policy Coalition to try and get policy action. But um, around the world, uh, including in New Zealand, um, they've been relatively late to the party. And it's more complex. It's a more difficult space to try to operate in. Yet you have shown that the obesity epidemic probably started with the globalisation of food. You've got to take on the food industry, haven't you? And that's a national issue. You do have to take on the food industry and there's lots of other things politicians would rather do than take on the food industry. Um, and that's part of the reason that we've had virtually no action whatsoever. None of the policy action recommended by WHO implemented in countries like Australia and New Zealand. It's just too big a job uh, for the politicians to see themselves as a champion over many years battling the food industry. Um, they find other things that uh, need to get done. So, so what's, what's um, this you know, problem? Is this taxing sugar and fat? What, what's, what are the policy options? Well, the major policy options are around taxation, yes, particularly around sugary drinks, but also junk foods, um, especially around also reducing the exposure of kids to junk food marketing, um, around healthy foods uh, and drinks required within schools, uh, mandatory front-of-pack labelling, there's a list of about a, at least a half a dozen policies which uh, groups like the Obesity Policy Coalition have been promoting and uh, advocating for for decades and uh, really have got no traction. So uh, they, do, they are important because they're population-wide policies and therefore they're likely to have a significant effect at a population level. So politicians need to stop bleating about obesity and actually do something about it. Yeah, when they go to um, the World, uh, uh, World Health Assembly in May in Geneva every year and they say yes to all of these policies and agreements that come through, uh, they need to really come home and implement uh, what they've just agreed to. Boyd, thanks for joining us yet again. <laughs> You're welcome. Nice to talk to you. Boyd Swinburne is Professor of Population, Nutrition and Global Health at the University of Auckland. Autoimmune diseases occur because your immune system attacks a specific part of your body. In type 1 diabetes, it's the insulin-producing cells in your pancreas. Multiple sclerosis, it's the protective covering of the nerves in your brain. Rheumatoid arthritis, it's the sheath lining your joints, and so on. There are about 100 of these autoimmune diseases affecting up to 9% of the global population. What's been suspected for some years is that since the immune system is fired up in immune, autoimmune disease, it could also inflame your arteries, increasing the risk of heart attacks and strokes. The evidence is pretty strong for rheumatoid arthritis, but less certain for other autoimmune diseases, which is why a group of British and Belgian researchers has taken a sample of 22 million people to match those with one of 19 autoimmune diseases with the incidence of heart disease and compared that to people with no autoimmune disease. Dr. Natalie Conrad is an epidemiologist at Leuven University in Brussels, and she was the lead author. Welcome to The Health Report, Natalie. Hello, um, thank you for having me. What exactly were the outcomes you were looking for in terms of heart disease in association with autoimmune disease? Well, because there have been previous studies looking at coronary heart disease and stroke, as you just mentioned, we uh, wanted to have a look at a broader spectrum of cardiovascular diseases. And so we, we had a look at the you know classical cardiovascular diseases, of course, but also 
degenerative heart disorders like heart failure, heart uh, valve disease, and arrhythmias, but also inflammatory conditions like myocarditis and pericarditis, and infection-related heart disease, um, essentially infective endocarditis. And so we had a look at 12 different now, one of the problems with um, association studies where you're not necessarily proving cause and effect with, you know, on autoimmune causes in heart disease, you did find an increased risk of various cardiovascular outcomes, such as you've said. But if, if it's cause and effect, you'd expect if you've got a stronger dose of the, whatever you're looking at, you get more of an effect. Now, some people have more than one autoimmune disease. They can have two or even three. What did that mm-hmm. do for their coronary risk? Yes, well, what we did see is that those who had two uh, had higher risk of developing cardiovascular disease than those who had one, and the risk continued to increase with three or more autoimmune disorders. So there was clearly, in our study, there was a dose response. Um, what about age? Well, what we, see, what we saw on age was that, uh, surprisingly perhaps, um, those that developed autoimmune disease at a younger age were at much higher risk in comparison to healthy controls um, of cardiovascular disease. Uh, we, we thought that this might probably be because cardiovascular disease will tend to develop in those at higher age for a whole range of risk factors, including age, <clears throat> blood pressure, cholesterol, and so on. Whereas uh, in younger people, cardiovascular disease is actually quite rare. And so there the risk difference is much higher. Now, some autoimmune diseases seem more toxic for the heart and blood vessels than others. Yes, we, we did observe that. Um, what we saw in our study, though, is that every single one of the 19 autoimmune disorders that we studied had an increased risk uh, for cardiovascular disorders than um, those who did not have autoimmune diseases. But what we saw is that those conditions that are known to be associated with um, systemic inflammation and endothelial damage, for example, like what we see in systemic sclerosis or lupus, those had the highest risk of CVD. Now, what they say with some rheum- conditions like sorry, what they say with rheumatoid arthritis is that if you if you're well treated the risk of coronary heart disease and cardiovascular disease goes down. Were you able to look at the effect of treatment in your study? No, that we couldn't do. So our study was really observational in nature, and studying the effect of medication is very complex in such setting, especially because here the the treatment prescriptions are likely to be uh, confounded by disease severity, right? So the more severe your disease the more likely you are to get a whole range of medications, which will all have different effects on the heart. Uh, we do know that some anti-rheumatic me- medications like uh, metostrexate, they will have a positive impact on cardiovascular disease, and others like steroids will have a, a usually a very negative effect on cardiovascular disease. So to study the effect of medication, we do really need clinical trials, but probably also uh, trials that will look at diseases individually and uh, medications individually, because other, as a routine clinical uh, data set, uh, mixing all these different conditions, that would be very difficult. So this is, I mean, you're, you're showing you know, a lot of strong evidence for cause and effect here. 
What can doctors do, particularly in younger people here? What, what's, the, what's the clinical outcome of a study like this? Well, um, the study has only just been published, right? So there are, for now, there are no specific prevention guidelines for patients with autoimmune diseases. Uh, we are hoping that it's going to be developed in the near future, and we're also hoping that you know, some people will develop um, trials to test new drugs, but also existing cardiovascular prevention drugs like statins or <clears throat> anti-inflammatory medications, specifically in patients with autoimmune diseases, so that we have more evidence to um, develop these guidelines. But for now, what, um, what doctors uh, are probably likely to do, and patients as well, is to make sure that those patients who have autoimmune disorders do follow all the general cardiovascular disease prevention guidelines that we know are effective in the general population. Natalie, thanks that for joining us. include a healthy diet. Yeah. Natalie, thank you for joining us. Okay, thank you. Dr. Natalie Conrad is a cardiovascular epidemiologist at Leuven University in Belgium. About a year ago, we marked a world first. The WHO approved a vaccine for malaria, a disease that causes hundreds of thousands of deaths a year, most of them in young children and babies. It was an important milestone, but the vaccine was far from perfect. It's only about 40% effective, and it needs to be given in four doses across 18 months, which is a logistical challenge, especially in the remote areas where the toll of malaria is highest. Now a group from Oxford University is making headlines with a new vaccine it says provides better protection and is cheaper and easier to make. To talk through what this new vaccine can and can't do is malaria immunologist Michelle Boyle from QIMR Berghofer. Malaria has been co-evolving with humans for forever, essentially. And so the parasite has developed lots of ways to escape how human bodies fight the disease. And a lot of those problems sort of fall over into vaccination as well. And so it's been really difficult to find the right target against this parasite. And also we're really blocked by these ways that the parasite can disrupt the immune response. And that makes it really tricky to develop vaccines that work in children have already had a parasite infection. But they've managed to do it, at least to a certain extent, because now we've got two vaccines that are showing a lot of promise there. So what have they been able to do that previous groups haven't? The licensed malaria vaccine is relatively low protection. It only protects on a whole population level at about 40% at best. So this new vaccine from the Oxford group uses the same target as that licensed vaccine. We've identified one that is really important for how that parasite after it comes from this mosquito, gets into the liver. That's the first stage of the parasite development in the human body. So that's the part of the parasite that's targeted, a protein that's involved in that liver stage infection. So both the licensed malaria vaccine and this new Oxford vaccine target that same part of the parasite. But this new Oxford vaccine has more of the target protein and less of other proteins in the vaccine. Can we talk about what this Oxford vaccine actually requires in terms of rollout? With the current data from this small trial, what they've shown is that you need to give three vaccines about four weeks apart, and then that protects for the next six months. 
but then with the next malaria season in the next year, they've given it another booster dose. So at the moment, rolling out both that first dose strategy is difficult because those doses don't fit into, you know, the current childhood vaccination programs. And this is similar to the problems with the existing licensed malaria vaccine. And additionally, having to have a yearly booster is going to be really complicated because you have to have another program to get back in and vaccinate all your children again. And as we can see, even from COVID vaccines in a setting like Australia, it's really difficult to get boosters in arms of patients. Are there other potential shortfalls of this study? They've done this in an area of seasonal malaria transmission. So that means that there's a period of the year where there's lots of malaria and for the other half of the year, there's very little malaria. So with this Oxford vaccine, although it's super promising, it's only been tested in a relatively small trial in one study site where it has this two seasons of malaria. So they've given the vaccine just before the malaria season and it's shown really high efficacy. However, it's yet to be tested in a study site where there's malaria there all year round. So it's really difficult to know um, until we get more data how this vaccine is going to go in these areas where malaria is transmitted all year by mosquitoes. And we're talking here about the form of malaria with the biggest global burden of disease, which is falciparum. That's correct. The falciparum, like you said, is the biggest burden of disease. But there's other globally important malaria strains particularly Plasmodium vivax, which causes a lot of disease burden in our neighbours in Southeast Asia. And these current vaccines don't target that parasite at all. So this vaccine, even though it's really exciting, wouldn't really be useful in the Asia-Pacific region? It is useful in some areas in the Asian-Pacific region where falciparum is really important, including Papua New Guinea and some parts of Indonesia. Malaria cases number in the hundreds of millions of cases worldwide and it carries a really high death toll, especially among young children. How long do you think it will be until we've got a really meaningful defence against it in terms of a vaccine? Yeah, I mean, how long's a piece of string? I think we're all very excited about both the licensed vaccine and this new data from the Oxford group. But until we have the results from this big clinical study that the Oxford vaccine has, hopefully to see data towards the end of this year, it's really hard to know whether we're there yet or we still need to keep developing tools. But regardless, I think there's still quite some time before we have a very highly effective protective vaccine like we have for things like measles. Surely an imperfect vaccine is still better than no vaccine at all, especially if it's combined with the other interventions that have already been pretty successful, like treated mosquito nets and other prophylactic interventions. That's very true. That's why the community is so excited about the licensed vaccine, because the more tools we have that we can apply to these endemic settings, the more lives can be saved. And it was really clear from the modelling, even from these imperfect vaccines, that lots and lots of lives can be saved by the use of these new tools. So I think that that's another really great plus about this new Oxford vaccine, because it seems that it's probably easier to manufacture and easier cost-wise to have lots and lots of doses required for these malaria endemic settings. But I'm hesitant to say that it's the golden bullet until we get further studies out in different transmission settings. As someone who's in this space looking at the horizon all the time, where do you see, where do you hope we're heading in terms of malaria in the coming, say, decade? 
we definitely need to have new tools because since 2015, there's been a real plateau in the reductions of malaria. And in the last two years, because of the COVID pandemic, these malaria cases have really shot up. And while I'd like to say that we can really wrap this up and have malaria eliminated within the next 10 years, I think that that is wildly optimistic and very unfeasible with the current tools that we have. So I think that applying new innovation and new strategies is going to be really important. Yeah, well, the fact that the cases are going up under the radar while the pandemic's going on, even with this new vaccine that was approved last year, that's a bit of an eye-opener really, isn't it? Yeah, and it's really scary to see how quickly things can go bad. You know, the malaria control programs have done really, really great since the early 2000s and there's been huge reductions between 2000 and 2015 and then just really no progress and then really big increases in some areas, which just really shows how important it is to be constantly vigilant and how disruptive things like unplanned for pandemics can be. Michelle, thanks so much for joining us. No worries. Thanks for having me, Tegan. Dr. Michelle Boyle studies human malaria immunology at QIMR Berghofer. And that's the health report done for another week. We'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.